Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. I really would like to confirm Pastor Dan's uh, prophetic anointing, uh, but I feel like I'm going to have to jump up and down closer to the end of the message, or we'll have to call for the medics. So uh, if it doesn't happen during, uh, I will try to do something at the end. Okay, so stay tuned. All right. Once again, good morning. Welcome to Community Christian Church. It's so great to have you here. As Pastor Dan said, we're right in the middle of a summer series entitled James. Not LeBron or Jesse or Rebecca Saint or James Brown. We're talking about a book of the Bible. A short little five-chapter epistle in the New Testament written by the brother of Jesus. And as we've done in previous years, we're taking the whole month of August to do an in-depth study of this one book. And last Sunday, if you were here, in lesson number one of the series, the introductory lesson, I laid out the goal. And the goal is to gain insight and knowledge from the Word of God. And how many of you want to do that? I mean, that's why you're here, right? to hear God's word and to respond to it. But in addition to that, what we're trying to do here this month is literally press into God and to sustain that all-elusive place of full devotion. And full devotion requires transformation and change. That's what the applied word of God will do. It will remake you and rework you in the image of God. And again... The optimum phrase is the applied Word of God, making application from the Word of God. It's great to read His Word, to study it, to memorize it, to love it. That's all beneficial. But when you take to heart the instruction found in God's Word, now that's transformational. And so I'm praying that you would open your heart and allow the Word to come alive inside of you. God's Word is powerful, it's quick, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it can do some work for us this morning, and I'm trusting that you will allow the Spirit of God to work in your life. All right, let's jump right in. We've got a lot to cover. What I'd like to do is read the first 13 verses of James chapter 2, and I uh, asked you and appealed to you last Sunday to stay focused because this is a lot of reading, but I, I know that there's an anointing on the Word of God, and so we want to read every verse And sometimes God will do some things in your life that nobody else can do. It's not something I say or anyone else says. It's what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. That's the power that's in God's Word. So we're reading every verse. Uh, Are you going to hang with me here? All right. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, how many of that is us? As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, not just our Lord, but our glorious Lord... Don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court, slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. I'm going to just read that one more time. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, there's a lot here. And my challenge this morning is to utilize the short amount of teaching time we have today to say something to you that is going to stick. That's what I'm really hoping, is that you will choose to embrace some of the truth that James talks about in this book. And once again this morning, like last week, I've chosen to bypass and forego the the expository verse-by-verse approach. And what I want to do with this message is just focus in on two different topics. The first topic is going to come from these 13 verses that we just read. And I can sum up the first topic that I want to share with you with just four words. How many? Four. Four. James chapter 2, verses 13b. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's say that together. Triumphs over judgment. One more time, very methodically. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, over the years and throughout the generations, you can trace this all the way back to the first century church. Believers in Christ have had difficulty. They've struggled with the written law. And I'm talking about all of the laws and the commands that God gave to Moses and to the children of Israel. We're talking about some 613 Old Testament moral and ceremonial laws. In addition to all the traditions and the regulations and the heavy burdens that the religious leaders threw into the mix and placed upon the people of God. Now, with regard to the written law, you should know by now that according to the scripture in the fullness of time, God sent his only begotten son. And Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins. He came as our redeemer, as our rescuer. And when he went to the cross, when he died on the cross as the sinless lamb of God, the one who became the final sacrifice, when he did that, he fulfilled the Old Testament law. And because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we as believers are no longer under the Old Testament law. We are not under obligation to fulfill all of those 613 laws that I just talked about. If you don't believe me, try Ephesians 2, 
15, it says, For he himself, Christ Jesus, is our peace, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his own flesh the law. What did Jesus abolish or fulfill? The law. With all its commandments and regulations. In other words, Jesus did away with the law. He fulfilled and accomplished the law. So believers today, and you know this, but again, we struggle with it, we're no longer under the written law to obey all of those obligations and all of those ceremonies and customs and ordinances. We have been set free from all that. And what has been extended to us is a gift from God called mercy and grace. We have been given divine grace and mercy. And how many of you are thankful for that? You should be thankful. And this is where I'm going to jump up and down. All right? We should be excited about grace and mercy. It's amazing grace. It's wonderful grace. And we absolutely love it. But check it out. Here's the problem. We love grace. And we get excited about the truth of being set free from having to obey the written law. But we want everybody else to. We want everyone else to abide by the law, including unbelievers. And when other people disregard or violate the written law, when they do things that, would, that we classify as sinful behavior, that's when we get our shirt in a knot and we cry foul. My dear friends, listen to me. Because if you read between the lines, this is what James is trying to communicate to us. He has something here that he, he wants us to try and grasp. And I think sometimes it just, it, it, it gets on the other side of our understanding. The church today has become expert at calling out other people's sins. I'm going to repeat that. We have become masters at identifying and calling out other people's sins. If a believer or even an unbeliever has a lifestyle that is contrary to our interpretation of Scripture or our understanding or opinion, that's when we point the finger of criticism and we play the sin card. And I'm talking about passing judgment on other people, even though Jesus in his teaching said, stop doing that. He made it very clear. Do not pass judgment on other people. He included that in one of his most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. He said, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. You see, sometimes in our good intentions, we take extremely complicated and controversial life issues, and I mean issues that have a lot of moving parts, and we reduce them to a law. We say, here it is in black and white, thou shall not. And we get so hung up on the law that we lose sight of the fact that in Christ the greatest of these is love. This is what 1 Corinthians teaches us. Paul spent a whole chapter talking about this. 
Jesus went on and on about the importance of showing love and having love to one another. In fact, in his closing words before his death, he appealed to his disciples, love the way I have loved you. No, don't just love, love the way I have loved you. But sometimes, because we're so committed to what we believe to be the standard uh, for God's word, that we undermine the teaching of love and we feel the need to pinpoint the law. And here's what James says. If you're going to do that, if you're going to judge other people's outrageous behavior and all of their shortcomings and faults and failures, then remember this. If for other people your standard or your focus is the law, then you had better be ready to keep the law yourself. The entire law. And how many have known we proved that there's just no way we can do that? Many good groups of people have tried without success. So here's my recommendation. Anybody interested? Yes. Mercy. Show mercy. Choose mercy. Love mercy. And I have scriptural backing. James chapter 2, verses 13b. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's say that again. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want you to memorize those four words. It comes right from the heart of Jesus. Again, during the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed to be envied, happy are the merciful. Why? Because they will be shown mercy. They will be recipients of mercy. And so with God, from his perspective, check it out, mercy wins every time. And it wins by a long shot. But pastor, what about the really evil people? I mean, the really bad ones. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How about the prostitutes and the pornographers and the pedophiles? The evil people, the thieves, the deceivers, the robbers. Every time. This is God's doing. This is the gift of God. And James spells it out. James makes it very clear. Because there were, was a time in his life when he didn't have it. And he wants us to have it. Where do you think he got this idea from? Think he just popped into his head? I got it from his brother. He remembers a teaching that Jesus gave. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13, when talking to the religious leaders who looked down on people and, and condemned them and, and, and passed judgment on them. Here's what he said. Go and learn what this means. Learn it, because it doesn't come naturally. It's just not going to be a part of you. It's not a part of human nature. That's why it's a learned behavior. You've got to work at it. Go, Jesus said, and learn what this means. I will have mercy. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, we live in a very unique day today. And the church today, like never before, has to make the gospel message clear. In the Old Testament, the Bible tells us there were times when the generations didn't do that and younger generations 
came up and they had no idea of, of what the great things that Jehovah God had done. We have got to, as the church of Jesus Christ, convey and articulate the gospel message. This is extremely important. But how do we do that? How do we communicate truth? How do we articulate uh, what we believe and not compromise? Well, my favorite verse of scripture for that is 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have or the reason why you believe in truth. But do this with gentleness and respect. How many of you say we're getting that second part right? I don't think so. I mean, the first part, we, we want to tell people what we believe and why, and it's important we have to do that, especially today. Don't misunderstand me. We have a responsibility to make sure that people understand the gospel message of Jesus Christ. All they have is the church to do that. We have to raise that voice and that truth, but with kindness and respect and gentleness and understanding. This is a very important concept. I'm going to be talking a little bit more about 1 Peter 3.15 next Sunday. All right, let's read the next passage. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 25. Are you still out there? Got real quiet. <laughs> Contemplating, right? Thinking. Okay. What good is it, my brothers and sisters... If someone claims to have faith, but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder or they tremble. You foolish person. Who is uh, James talking to again? Brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified or lives a good life, the right kind of a life, by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab, even Rahab, the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds or faith without works is dead. One more time. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. All right. Anyone who truly understands the Christian doctrine of salvation knows that there's really only one way to be saved. The only way to be saved 
is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be in right standing with God. Romans 10.9 says, If you will confess the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that God raised Jesus from the dead, you shall what? You shall what? Okay, salvation comes by believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And to take this one step further, you can't even say Jesus is Lord. You can't even receive the revelation of salvation without the grace of God. So even though you're making the decision to believe in him, even though you're calling him the Lord of your life and you're taking that step, you can't do that without the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 establishes that. It says, for it is by grace that you've been saved. Through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Okay, Paul goes through great lengths. And now I mean he shed a lot of blood and tears, especially blood, his own, to establish this truth. I mean, he made it very clear that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus, period. There's no way that we could ever work our way to salvation. No way that we could ever earn salvation. No way that we could merit or deserve it. Right? Enter James chapter 2, verses 14 through 25, culminating with verse 25, faith without works or faith without deeds is dead. Are you getting this? Yes. It's no wonder how much confusion and controversy this one statement made and what, what it brought. In fact, many preachers and good church leaders, I mean solid church leaders, they had a really difficult time reconciling this one verse. Some of the church leaders, top leaders, I, I, I mean really big names, they literally wanted to attempt to remove this passage from the Bible, said it didn't belong there. Well, I think you'll be happy to know that it does belong there. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 25 belongs there because the Holy Spirit put it there. And with a careful understanding of what James was attempting to articulate here, you will be able to conclude there's absolutely no contradiction whatsoever to Paul's grace alone teaching. But it's really important that you understand this so that you can explain it, so that you can analyze it in your own mind. And to help me with this point... Uh, the point to try and communicate to you that we're saved by grace alone, but our faith requires some attention, I want to use two additional Christian doctrines. I'm not going to detail these out. I'm not going to spend a long time giving you a lengthy definition because typically when you start talking about doctrine on a Sunday morning, everybody takes a nap. I don't want you to do that. I want you to stay wide awake just like you are right now. And so I'm going to just highlight these two Christian doctrines that are very important. There's justification and sanctification. Say that, please. Justification and sanctification. I know they're big words. Uh, most of you have probably already heard them. First, justification. 
Justification is when God says or when God declares we are righteous and that we are holy. That we are literally in right standing with God. And that righteousness before God that we have is not because of who we are or what we've done or what we haven't done, but rather it's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So God justifies us. He puts us through this process called justification, and he does it completely on his own. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25 says, He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our trespasses or our sins, and he, Jesus, was raised to life for what? For our justification. The fact is, other than our willingness to take that step of faith and believe in Jesus, which we need the grace of God to do anyway, we have very little involvement, if any, in that initial step of salvation. In other words, God puts us through the justification process all by himself. He declares we're holy. He declares we're righteous. He declares that we're in right standing with God, with, with, with himself, all because of what Jesus has already done. So we have very little to do with justification. However, we are intimately involved in the activity of sanctification. Again, to simplify it, sanctification is the process of being set apart for God's work. It's different than being saved. It's allowing the grace of God to work in your life and in my life so that we can be made in the image of Christ. Sanctification is God working diligently in the life of a believer who's already been justified Helping that believer put away sinful habits, fleshly desires, and produce godly character. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It's God's will that you should be sanctified. That each of you should avoid sexual immorality. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and pleasing or holy and honorable. In an effort to live a life that's pleasing to God. To obey Him to surrender and submit to his word, we need both of these doctrines working together, justification and sanctification. With justification, we're not involved. With sanctification, with justification, we're not involved. With sanctification, we certainly are. Are you understanding this? Okay, let's go back to a passage that I shared earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. This is where Paul establishes that The gift of salvation comes from the hand of God. For it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Makes it very clear. Grace given to us that allows us to have faith is what leads us to salvation. Did you know there's a verse 10 in Ephesians chapter 2? It didn't stop with Ephesians 8 and 9. There's a 10. In fact, there's an 11, 12, 13, goes all the way down. But there's an Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says this. For we are God's workmanship. This is on the tail end of Paul telling us how important it is to understand that salvation is by grace alone. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, what? To do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What does Ephesians 2.10 sound a lot like? James 2.25. 
where he said, faith without deeds is dead. You see, these two verses were hand in hand. The verse in James, the verse in Ephesians. It calls our attention to the importance of church activity and church service where we get involved in doing the things that God has called us to do. Again, there's nothing we can do to work our way to heaven. We cannot earn a deserved salvation. We're not involved in justifying ourselves or making ourselves holy. We need Jesus for that. However, we are involved in sanctification. And God does require us to use the grace that he gives us to allow our lives to be changed, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. This is what sanctification is all about. It's choosing to be set apart so we're not like everyone else. We don't live our lives the way everyone else does. We're justified because God says so. We're sanctified because we choose to get involved. Now, I want to make one more point that we're going to call it quits for today. And what I want to say now is basically for those of you who heard me during the first part of this message and concluded that I was soft on sin, that I must be one of those grace preachers that doesn't have the guts to call sin out. Well, you're half right. You're half right because I am a grace preacher, always have been. And I make no apology for that. I'm all about grace. And the reason I'm all about grace is because I learned it from Jesus. He was a grace preacher. But I have absolutely no problem on the flip side of the coin with the message that Jesus gave or the teaching he gave in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. When he actually looked the woman in the eye and told her to go and sin no more. He told this woman who had been involved in sin to put the sin away. Paul the Apostle picked up on that same teaching. And he devotes the first couple chapters of the book of Romans to talking about this. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, after masterfully explaining all about the grace of God and the unconditional love of God, and how God draws us and woos us to that place of changing our lives by his his spirit and by his kindness and all of that. In, J in, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, he asked the question. It's a powerful one. Shall we continue in sin? Romans 6, 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you remember how he answered that question, his own question? God forbid. No way. But here's my question to you. Why not? Why not? Why not continue in sin? If everything that we just talked about is true, if God has unconditional love for us, if he justified us all by himself, made us holy, made us right, and in right standing with him, declares us righteous, why not live a life of selfishness and greed? Why would we ever want to change that? And I'm asking you that question because a couple of weeks ago, that's exactly what a man asked me. After during a conversation with an unsaved man, after I did what I thought was a really good job, better than average, uh, at explaining the importance of grace and God's amazing grace and how wonderful he is and how, how much love he has for us and he sent his son and, and the, the cross proves the love. 
he comes right back with, well, why should I change? If God has that much love for me, if he's justified me, if he's made me holy in his sight, why would I even think about going through the paces to change? Why? Because of sanctification. God didn't call it quits with justification. That was just the beginning of the package. It includes justification and sanctification. He wants us to actually bring him glory. You can't bring him glory if you're not made in his image, if you don't reflect his, his character and his attributes. And this is what happens to us so much, my friends. People that I love with all my heart, I wish you knew how much I love you. We go through the justification process and then we start pointing fingers. And God says, I want you to not only understand that you're justified in my sight, but there's another step, sanctification. And it does involve working and serving and effort. And that's why James went on to teach us a powerful lesson when he said faith without deeds, faith without works, faith without the sanctification is dead. And I wish I could sugarcoat it for you, but I can't. That word dead in the Greek is the same word that they use for a corpse. Lifeless, without breath, without movement. You want a vibrant faith? You want a spirited faith, a faith that's alive? We were singing about it all morning. Is that the kind of faith that you want? The faith to know that God can move again in the world today? I mean, we, we, we sing about it. We, we stand. You know, some people raise their hands. Do you really have the faith to believe that God can do it again? Then you've got to put your hand to the plow. And you have to let God go to work in your life to sanctify you and to make you in his image and likeness. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There is absolutely no contradiction with what James had to say in the second chapter. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, all during this message this morning, after the opening comments, I could just tell that you were speaking to us. And Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for the conviction power of the Holy Spirit, and there's nothing wrong with conviction. That's the only way that we could make adjustments and change. We don't apologize, Lord, for you moving among us that's the way that we can be sanctified. That's the way that we can affect change. And we can take a look at ourselves. When we can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us and we choose to respond. And I thank you, Lord, for a congregation that has that as its top desire. Not just to hear your word, not just to listen to it, but to do it.
Lord, could you raise us up? Could you raise the church of Jesus Christ up today to be a solid voice that we could speak, Lord, truth, that we could do it with love and grace, that we could learn what this means, that mercy triumphs, it wins over, it prevails, it succeeds over judgment. Lord, I know that there were multiple lessons that you were speaking. And I just pray, Lord, that we would open our hearts to one of those lessons and allow the word of God to come alive in us because we do want to have that living faith, Lord. We want to be the light shining in a dark place. And I pray in these closing moments, Lord, you would do the very thing that we've prayed would be our goal for this series. And that's to actually press into you and get to that place, Lord, that sustain that place of full devotion. Move in these last few moments, we pray, Lord. Amen. I'm so glad to be able to stand and say that God cannot fail. Say that, God cannot fail. God cannot fail. But we do. We fail. I, I believe on the authority of God's word, we're living in a very dark day. It's an evil day. It's great opportunities, but nonetheless, it's dark. And you can get up in the morning and see the sunrise, and you can make a commitment and declaration to God that you are going to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you are going to be the greatest Christian you could possibly be that day, and 30 seconds out into the world, breathing the evil darkness and sin, and you're already violating the commitment that you made. It's an evil day, friend. This is why we need sanctification. This is why we need to acknowledge that we live in a time when we absolutely have to run hard after the living God. Sanctification is a gift from God. His grace is available to take us from where we're at to the place he wants us to be. He can get us there. He can't fail. And if you're having a little difficulty in some area of your life, if the enemy has a stronghold on you or you've found yourself with some kind of a pattern of sin, I want to I pray for you. As we close out the service this morning, I just want to include you in that prayer because there's so much against us. We have to recognize we have a real enemy who wants to destroy us. But before I pray for those who need the sanctification, I'm wondering... If there are a few here, and I, I, I think there are, I want you to just go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes for a second. That you need justification. You've never fully surrendered your heart or your life to Jesus Christ. I said earlier that we need the grace that God gives us to even take that step. We, we can't even make that decision on our own. We need the grace of God in order to raise our hand and say, God, I want to surrender my heart to you, my life to you. 
And I firmly believe that grace is available to you today. And so I want to pray for those of you who need justification. If you would be willing to just extend yourself and surrender yourself to God this very day and say, Lord, I give you my life. I need to know I'm in right standing with you. I need to know that I'm holy in your eyes. I can't do that on my own. I accept Jesus Christ into my life in order to do that. If that would be you this morning, without dragging this out, you feel that in your heart, could you just slip up your hand real quick and put it right back down? Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. I see in the back. Maybe four or five hands. Okay, Father, we just thank you for your, this time in your presence. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in each of our hearts. So we lay ourselves before you. We come before you in your presence, Lord God. We thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. You're a God who encourages us. You're a God who loves us. And for those few hands, Lord, that were raised here today, thank you, Lord, for their salvation miracle. Thank you for the grace, Lord, that justifies them. I pray that each one would know, Lord, that they are righteous in your eyes because of their willingness to accept what Jesus did for them on the cross. And Father, we admit that we're sinners. And we ask, Lord, that you would forgive our sins. We humble ourselves, repent of our sins, and we cry out to you to be our Savior and Lord. And Lord, I thank you for that gift of salvation for my brothers and sisters, my new brothers and sisters in Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, we surrender to the sanctification process where you go to work in our lives, Lord, and you energize our faith. That you allow our faith to come alive. Lord, deliver us from the tragedy of having dead faith of having a faith that once was, having a faith that only moved, Lord, years ago. Lord, I pray that you would increase the level of faith in each person in this place today as we surrender to you, as we draw from your grace, Lord God. For Lord, those who are stuck in a, in a place right now, those who might be in a backslidden condition, those, Lord, who are having difficulty with certain patterns of sin and desires in their life. I pray that the Spirit of God would set them free today, Lord. Thank you, Father, for that freedom that comes because of what you did on the cross. We have been set free, and I pray, Lord God, that we would walk in that freedom, that we would say within ourselves, shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? Absolutely not, no way. We put our hand to the plow, Lord. We want to do big things for God. We trust in you. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for your power. Thank you for that amazing grace. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. God bless you. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.